This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and on December 17th, David had the absolute pleasure of chatting with Tomas Hendrik Ilves, the former president of Estonia. The interview is split into two parts, and the second part will be published tomorrow. As for part one... We're with Tomas Hendrik Ilves, former president of Estonia. Tomas, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's good to be here, or at least <laughs> to be talking to you. I don't know. We're not we're not there. Yes, you were uh, ten time zones away from us. Again, I deeply appreciate your time. Estonia's gone through an amazing transition since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. In 1991, and we were talking about this before we started, a lot of Americans believe that under Gorbachev and with Glasnost that there was a smooth transition, this very peaceful, easy transition for independence for a lot of the former Soviet bloc nations. But that really wasn't the case. Well, I mean, first of all, there's no one-size-fits-all model. I would say uh, from Moldova and Ukraine uh, eastward, it kind of fell in people's laps. Which And what you saw in those countries was that um, the former party first secretaries made a smooth transition to being presidents. And so, I mean, that's a whole different story, but basically the Long before the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, I remember reading a uh, comparative political science journal article on how the record for maintaining democracy for presidential republics was a lot, lot worse than parliamentary republics. You can basically say that all successful countries have have been parliamentary republics or all successful democracies have been parliamentary republics. Which until 2016, uh, the sole exception to that rule was was the United States, which you know managed 240 years without with without any real major problems with democracy, uh, as with a presidential form of governance. But basically, and the problem was that from Moldova on east, they all kind of turned uh, semi-despotic, semi-dictatorial. The the problems with the collapse, uh, I mean, of course, there were riots and uh, various things that uh, unpleasant things that happened in uh, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Ukraine with Ruh and other con- countries that actually the uh, the uh, the instigators, the really nasty people were the Estonians, Latvians and Lithuanians 
who had been uh, basically anti-Soviet from day one or from 1940. And so we were always a problem for the USSR and uh, they were never very happy with the way things were going. And it is telling that from the moment of independence or reestablishment of independence, from day one, uh, they adopted an extremely hostile attitude toward us. I mean, that first winter, they simply cut off gas. So when there is this, this view of this halcyon state of Boris the Great, uh, it, they were not very nice at all, whereas the other countries besides the Baltic states were basically satrapies, and uh, some of them continued to be. Or as Kennan said, and, uh, with the Soviet Union, now I would say Russia, uh, its neighbors can either be vassals or enemies, but nothing else. And in fact, uh, they were vassals, or are still in many cases uh, vassals, uh, and I would include Finland in there as well uh, during the Kekkonen period. So yes, it was not smooth, uh, hardly for us. And in fact, the big problem was that the view of the Soviet Union slash Russia, that now that there is no more communism, we have uh, reached the end of history, which was not the case. Uh, I mean, by the end of history, I mean, a not to make light of Fukuyama, but rather his point was that I mean, there was no new end state. It's kind of this neo-Hegelian view of his. Uh, whereas what we have, what others have finally discovered, maybe not everyone, but most people have discovered that, in fact, the problem was not just communism. In fact, it is very much this Derjava, great Russia, chauvinist attitude towards anyone who isn't Russian. You could see bits of it in the same kind of attitude adopted by Milosevic in the early 90s. The communists made a smooth transition to a, a nasty form of nationalism. Uh, and I remember even 1993, I told Paul Goebel, who's one of the premier researchers on uh, the non-Russian republics, as it were, uh, I said that if we ever see the Milosevization of Russia it will be far more brutal than anything we saw on the part of the Serbs. Well, the it, places where I would have liked to have been wrong, but unfortunately I was not wrong. It's interesting you say that because Igor Gherkin Strelkov on his Telegram channel two days ago compared Vladimir Putin to Milosevic. And he oozes snark in everything that he writes, but... Uh, he was very transparent in that comparison. The The basis of Milosevic was the, the 1354 defeat of the Serbs in Kosovo, Polya, or the field of Kosovo. And, and that's a problem to this very day. I mean, these days, like yesterday, I mean, they're still hung up on 1354, whatever the hell the date was, 1353, 1354. And this uh, appeal to greatness uh, based on sort of uh, the past, I would say, I mean, again, you can see this general rule of countries that keep talking about their past as ennobling and as the reason for their greatness. Now, look at Mussolini, right? I mean, he, he even adopted the, the symbols of the Roman uh, of the Roman Empire. And we see, you know, 
Russia's appeal to its glorious past, uh, a glorious non-existent past. It's, it's, there's not little there to be proud of, but in any case, even uh, what's his whatever his name was, Alexander, who fought the Battle of Papus against the Teutonic Knights, because we have this huge lake, largest lake in Europe, uh, Lake Papus. It was a famous battle, which they stopped the German hordes. The problem was that the the man who did it was actually a vassal who basically bowed and dropped to his knees before the Khan of the Mongol horde. It's all kind of, it, the history has really been warped. But in any case, countries that find uh, that their major claim to greatness is the past. I mean, today it's the so-called Great Patriotic War. And it's a myth that people buy into. I mean, uh, just a year and a half ago, you saw the German president, uh, Steinmeier, say, he actually said that we owe Nord Stream 2 to the Russians because of what the German army did to them. Well, actually, no. The number of people, the proportion of people, and even in the case of Ukraine, the absolute number of people killed by the German army vastly exceeded the uh, number of Russians killed. So, I mean, the top three victims were Poland, Belarus, and Ukraine. And actually, Russia was not really the Russians were not the primary victims. Yet uh, then just this, this myth of the Great Patriotic War used to justify a crass mercantile <laughs> deal <laughs> really made me throw my bottle of Coke against the wall when I read it. <laughs> when Estonia gained its independence from the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union had essentially destroyed Estonia during the time that it was ruling the country. Well, in fact, there's, we have pretty good numbers on that in that the uh, Cambridge University Economic History of Europe has a uh, chart in which they show the um, from in 1938, which was the last full year before World War II, in which anything was measurable or comparable, in fact, it was measurable but not comparable, Estonia had a slightly higher GDP per capita than Finland. 1992, which was the first full year after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that was again measurable, the GDP per capita of Finland was basically 24,000 US dollars nominal. The GDP per capita of Estonia in 1992 was 2,800 US dollars nominal. I should say it's 37,000 now, but back then 2,800. So you can say that as a result of the Soviet occupation, I mean, we were eight times poorer than uh, Finland because of that. And then, of course, this leads to the Zeno's paradox of development, which is, you know, where Achilles runs after the tortoise, but he never catches up because the tortoise is still going a little ahead. And, if, you know, when you do the look at the numbers, that means if Finland uh, would have had a 1.5% growth, which is a very low percentage of growth, and Estonia had a... 10% was an extremely high percentage of growth, we would still be in absolute numbers behind where, where Finland had gone in a year. So this is the, the problem of development, which I can talk about later on. But anyway, so we were poor. The infrastructure was 
was rickety, bad, the roads were horrible, the communication infrastructure hadn't really been improved much since 1938 from the pre-war period. One of the reasons why Estonia, I mean, there are several reasons why Estonia has been a success. Um, the first one actually comes from a uh, letter from Stalin to Lenin in about 1921. There was a big debate. Can the Soviet Union extend beyond the borders of the Russian Empire? There's a big controversy. Lenin said, yes, let, you know, the whole world is going to look like SWP paint, you know, recovered in red. And Stalin wrote this letter, which was suppressed from the collected correspondence for like 70 years. Mm -hmm. wrote this letter to Lenin saying uh, the Soviet Union cannot ex uh, ever contain within it countries that have had their own flags and embassies abroad because they, I mean, basically had diplomatic relations with other countries. So there is this, that they understand independence, which was a very wise thing to say. And this is why the hotbeds of anti-Soviet agitation were basically the three Baltic countries, which had been in, which were independent for twenty years, and you could also say Western Ukraine, which maybe perhaps is not independent but actually had experienced democracy under Austro-Hungarian rule, insofar as they were democratic, but nonetheless they were rule of law or Reichstag societies where you know actually the, the same laws applied to everyone. So that was one thing. The other reason why Estonia launched ahead was that, uh, even beforehand, was that we planned on this. And while people thought, lots of people thought all these people planning were crazy, but in fact, we did have a lot of, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, kind of leading intellectuals, professors were discussing what Estonia would look like when it became independent. Now, you know, as I said, lots of people thought this was all pie in the sky and you people are crazy, the Soviet Union will never go away. But they did this. And so, I mean, astoundingly, within three weeks of declaring independence in August, on August 20th, 1991, the Constitutional Convention convened. I mean, it was three weeks of independence. They're always saying, okay, mm -hmm. we need a new constitution. What kind of, con there's this, uh, you know, the big battles between presidential and parliamentary systems and elections and all of that. You have uh, first past the post or multiple mandate electoral districts. Uh, I mean, all of those things were the subject of heated battles immediately after declaring independence, whereas other countries just like, oh, yeah, well, we'll get there. So the planning part distinguished us. And then the other thing that helped was that we had some really smart people, first as civil servants, but then in the first democratic elections in 1992, came into power and they, were, they, they ran the government and they launched a, I call it a kamikaze reform path that just... I mean, they basically said, we know we're going to lose after this, so let's push as many reformist laws through as possible uh, as, as soon as, uh, I mean, and do it now because that will lay the groundwork, which they did. So, I mean, all kinds of things having to do with sale of land and uh, 
privatization, all these reforms were pushed through in basically a period of two years. And then the economy just took off. So there's a lot of planning ahead. How did Estonia root out the corruption which plagued so many other countries in the post-Soviet era? Okay, well, again, there's, it's a, there's a bigger picture which plays a significant part, and that is, is Finland. I mean, basically, Finnish and Estonian are like Dutch and German, or dare I say it, Russian and Ukrainian. I mean, they're... <laughs> Peace, pace, <laughs> that they are sufficiently similar that that spending, say, two or three weeks in the other's environment, you more or less can figure out what's going on, which led, I mean, one of the most important effects was that, like all sort of coastal countries, most coastal countries, especially small ones, they do not dub television programs or movies. And so Finland showed all these bad American TV programs like Dallas and Dynasty, where they spoke in English. They had the subtitles, but you could read the subtitles just as, you you know, if you're Ukrainian, you can read Russian subtitles. They, okay, that's more or less what they're saying. So we had a high level of English language knowledge was one thing. But the other thing is the culture of Finland is like squeaky clean. They're like number one in an absence of corruption in the world. Since Finland was viewed as the sort of ultimate end state that we wanted to achieve, all Finnish things were good things, all good things were Finnish. So developed, first of all, into this culture, well, you know, corruption is kind of tacky and we don't really like that. Now, there was a fair bit of corruption. We have always been the least, we had been from even before, uh, the least corrupt uh, Soviet country and post-Soviet. You know, every year we've been the least corrupt. So there is that culture. But the other part that really, uh, I argue, is important is the digitization of governance, which basically kills all forms of petty corruption because there is no opportunity for having to pay a an official to get something done. High-level corruption, you know, you pay some minister a lot of money, that is, that, that's a problem that is, you know, plagues everybody. But petty corruption has been rooted out of this society. I mean, basically, we took um, usual kinds of things you do are non-discretionary decisions, that decisions that should not be discretionary. You shouldn't have to pay a doctor to get an appointment. You don't. You shouldn't have to like pay a local official to get a permit to build something. And if you digitize that, tick off the boxes, or do you not tick off the boxes? I mean, if you tick off the boxes, the computer says boxes ticked off here. You get this much. This is what happens. I mean, that's how the system has worked for uh, almost twenty years. I mean, as we add more and more services. So at this time in this country, there are only two interactions between the individual and the state that cannot be done digitally. One is getting married. You both have to show up, which is a pretty good idea anyway. (laughs) And secondly, when you get divorced, where you both have to show up, and that's always not so pleasant. So anyway. Now, you're fully electronic voting in Estonia. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, whenever people say, well, we should do that too. And I say, don't do this at home. 
because it fits into an ecosystem that is com every use the exact same system for everything else. So that gives you the what is the most important element of digital voting is trust on the part of the population. The first time we did it was local elections in 2005 and 0.03% of the population participated. The last election we had was where the European parliamentary elections, I think the results were a little inflated because, because of the demographic votes, which is more sort of progressive, I'd say. But 47% of votes cast were done digitally. Usually it's around 30 to 35 in most in regular elections. But, you know, when you're voting for European Parliament elections is already like more tilted towards younger people who are more sort of interested and they uh, have more digital skills and uh, maybe more of an interest in the Parliament European elections. But anyway, yes, we do. But I, I don't stress that too often. We do this because... A couple of times a year, I get called up by some journalist from some country and others. Well, you have e-voting. Can we do it too? I go, no, you can't do it unless you do everything. Because all our bank transactions, all are done in the system. So you, you end up trusting the system where if it's a standalone thing as you had in the United States, I mean, you can exploit the whole trust issue as it has been, obviously, in the last two elections. One of Vladimir Putin's long list of excuses for his wide-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24 was, we don't want NATO up against our border, yet Estonia and your neighbors are all parts of NATO and smack dab on the Russian border. Well, you can go back uh, to the Soviet Union and point out that... <laughs> Turkey was one of the earliest members of NATO, was right up there against Soviet Georgia and Soviet Armenia back then. Now, it's, I mean, there's, there are many silly, silly excuses other than we are just, you know, imperialists, which is, I think, the main reason. But no, besides, he was never serious about that uh, because on the one hand, you know, the multiple part ultimatum that he proposed in December a year ago, that, you know, you roll back NATO enlargement to its 1997 borders, which was before any of the countries in NATO, even Poland, Hungary, Czechs and Slovaks had joined. Um, I mean, that was never serious. He knew that wouldn't happen. His greatest, as for as far as that argument is concerned, his greatest accomplishment in this war has been to convince two countries that have been historically neutral, one well, for 78 years, and the other for 200 and let me do the count, 207 years. Sweden has been officially neutral. 207 years. That's like a long historical tradition uh, of uh, <laughs> declared neutrality. And then, well, in the case of Finland, Finland has had low popular support for joining NATO for uh, ever since the end of the Soviet Union. I mean, before that, they had this uh, friendship agreement that prevented that from happening. But as soon as that was trashed in 1992, so 30 years ago, 
there's been no reason not to join NATO except for this residual Finlandization or Finlandization process. And now what has he gotten? By invading Ukraine, he has created a completely different security environment here, whereas our problem in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania has been strategic depth and the fact that any time for, for any country, it's a maximum of 300 kilometers from the Russian border to <laughs> the sea. Now, and with this whole big Kaliningrad there being you know, a big sort of problem and the Suwalki gap in which there's only 60 kilometers between Belarus and Kaliningrad and you could just cut off the bolts from anything. And it has been the subject for years of all kinds of discussions in the security policy uh, literature. I mean, suddenly the Baltic Sea turns into a NATO lake. Mm -hmm. Whereas when Finland was neutral, it didn't get involved in anything really with NATO or just a little bit. Now, I mean, if Finland and Estonia are both in NATO, the 50 F-35s they just bought from the U.S. can basically cross the Gulf of Finland, you know, basically, well, 11 times an hour. I mean, basically, just fly back and forth, right? Right, and cut off, cut off the Gulf of Finland, and cut thereby cut off uh, Leningrad or Saint Petersburg. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just an, such an own goal. But anyway, so that is, that, I mean, that's an argument made cynically by Putin and believed naively by people like Mearsheimer. <laughs> <laughs> did did Putin expose himself as a paper tiger? in all of this. The reason I ask that question is uh, growing up Gen X, we grew up in this environment of uh, mutually assured destruction. Uh, we don't want to ever have war against Soviet Union. It'll be the uh, end of the world as we know it. Um, you know, Gen X. Hey, I'm, I'm, garbage I'm a, like, like Red Dawn. And I'm a and, boomer. I grew up with a lot more of that. Yeah. I mean, I actually... You were hiding under the school desk. You needed your school desk. I did that when I was in first grade. So, yeah. I mean, no, I know. I mean, the the reality is that they do have 3,000 plus nuclear weapons and missiles. The danger remains. But, you know, as MAD, you know, possibly, like, no one really wants everyone to die. So that isn't going away. And then this kind of saber rattling that he's been engaged in for years, actually. But, you know, I mean, has a certain receptive audience in parts of Europe, especially Germany. I mean, we saw this with the SS-20 discussions in the 70s and 80s, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's been there. Uh, and the same people who were protesting against U.S. Pershings in Europe, which was actually a to counter the stationing of SS-20s. Uh, you know, they're protesting now. Now, well, whatever they're doing, I don't know. What they're, I mean, they're protesting for peace today as well, basically for their own comfort and at the expense of the genocidal behavior of Russia towards Ukraine. Because basically, I deep down inside. I would say that they don't consider Ukrainians really as important as people as they do, not only themselves, but the Russians. Isn't that at their own peril? If we were in a different timeline, if 
Zelensky, when he was told by the United States, hey, we'll go ahead and distract you. You can set up a shadow government somewhere else. He said, yes, I need a plane ride instead of saying I need ammunition, not a ride. I know I personally believe in that timeline, Ukraine collapses without its leader. And we're having a very different discussion today. Isn't this naive on the part of some people in Western Europe? Putin has made it very clear for over a decade, this goes beyond Ukraine. He wants to restore the boundaries of Imperial Russia, which extends into modern day Germany. I mean, if your if your primary motivator is mercantile economic policy, the cheap energy upon which uh, the basically superior German industry relies, I mean, they produce better goods for cheaper. Is really what it comes down to. I mean, other countries produce crappier goods for more. And that's why Germany is such a um, export mm, giant. Now, if you take away the cheap energy, well, that you lose a lot of your your competitive advantage. And so uh, that is more important than the I call them the Zwischenländer, the countries in between. I mean, which is how all of us have been treated for much, much longer than the end of the Soviet Union. And the absence of morality. Okay, you can see yeah, this picture of, uh, of Willy Brandt falling to his knees in Poland, which is kind of the summary of the German guilt. Well, it's kind of a Potemkin guilt. Uh, I mean, we, if we saw like, you know, the head of the FDP, the finance minister, basically laughing at the Ukrainian ambassador saying, oh, you're going to be gone in three days anyway. Well, I mean, that's pretty disgusting, I would say. But, yes. uh, but on the other hand, if you know the history of German relations with Russia and or with the Zwischenländer, uh, then it's pretty, it's pretty much uh, true to form. I would recommend highly recommend everyone to read the um, and since people don't know German too often anymore then the English language version of an article in Der Spiegel from May 18th of this year on uh, Helmut Kohl's memos which basically I mean Kohl is like first of all the Balts shouldn't get be independent I, I got that firsthand when I was yelled at by a member of the Bundesnachrichtendienst or the foreign intelligence already in 1990 yelling at me to stop this ridiculous thing you're doing with Estonia, you Estonians are doing wanting independence. And we read there that Kohl didn't want even us to be independent and never to join the European Union, never to join NATO. That was like his position all the time. And that, I mean, that's been a matter of German policy. I mean, you can say, well, we don't recognize the occupation of the Baltic countries. Wrong accent there, but anyway. Their real policy was, I mean, the the fundamental decision was do nothing to actually hurt relations with Russia. They're too important, you know, and the rest of these countries really don't matter because they're little peoples. They're little peoples. They don't really matter. Ukraine has been on an amazing journey. We look at, say, where Ukraine was in 2014, 
from a, a corruption standpoint, a government standpoint, and where they're at today, which isn't to minimize that Ukraine still has a tremendous amount of work to do uh, with a lot of that work appearing to be going on today, despite the fact that Ukraine is fighting for its existence. Well, it's a completely different place. I went there in, nine, I mean, I've been there a lot, and, but the first time I went, it was in 1996 or seven. But uh, 1999, I was sent there on some U.S. government program to talk to senior Ukrainian officials about, I mean, even then Estonia was considered like or by far the most successful post-Soviet republic at the time. But now what do we do? So I went through this hour and a half lecture on, you know, all the things we did. There were specific reforms. And the audience consisted of deputy ministers. And there were like 40 or 50 of them. So they had a lot of ministries. And they're deputy ministers. And none of them spoke English, too. Anyway, I went through this hour and a half lecture on, you know, really specific uh, reforms having to do with privatization and with currency convertibility and all those other stuff. And, um, and so after an hour and a half, we had the Q&A. And the first one, I said, no, questions. The one hand went up and the guy said, well, you know, you you guys can do this, all this re- successful reform stuff because you're so small. We're big. I said, okay. And then I, well, the next question was, and partially addressed to the first guy, said, you're completely wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. It's because... They're Lutheran and we're Orthodox. And then the third hand went up, saying, you both are crazy. The reason why we can't do anything is because they they were occupied for 50 years. We've been occupied for 70 years. And they had grandmothers who told them about what it was like. And we didn't have those grandmothers because they are all dead. Basically, what it degenerated into was a discussion of why Ukraine can't reform. And basically, it kind of reminded me of, um, you know, the, the first line of Anna Karenina. Uh, All successful countries are reformed alike. Each unsuccessful country finds its own excuse. And that was what this, you know, the result was just like arguing why they couldn't do something. That mentality is gone, but it took a while for it to go. I mean, I was there in the uh, the first Orange Revolution uh, when I was a member of, uh, well, I was the vice president of the European Parliament Foreign Affairs Committee. So we went there and we, you know, the task was to threaten uh, Kuchma that if uh, he tried anything funny with his troops, that it would be schluss, the end of everything for, for Ukraine from the European side. We probably weren't authorized to say, but we did it anyway. And... There was a feeling of a feeling of immense hope on the Maidan, but hope's not enough. You have to really do stuff, and so not much happened. And when and also you have to realize it takes time, and so pretty soon you got Yanukovych back. Then when Yanukovych trashed the uh, association agreement, people actually died protesting this and you saw much greater commitment to these to change that i had not seen before which before it was kind of like a there was a complacency 
in Ukraine. Well, yeah, I mean, look, we're happy we have our own country. And besides, it's our guys stealing, not the cutsups, right? I mean, that was kind of the, the attitude that I ran into. But then 2014, you really saw the percentage of people who actually were you know, willing to fight and die for their country dramatically increased. And when the full invasion came, I mean, you saw basically Ukraine become in these months a true nation committed to its future, which is an amazing thing to see. And why I have such great hopes for Ukraine once this is over is that those those Medvedchuks and Kolomoyskis and those people will not be tolerated. When you have had several hundred thousand people fighting for their country, you have had you know, some huge amount of people killed, and all of the other things that have happened, I would say that no one will tolerate the kind of corruption that plagued Ukraine in, in the past. And I think there will be a rather uh, almost Taliban-like demand for you know, what the Italians call manopuli, clean hands, uh, backed up by people who have suffered immensely and sacrificed for their own country. And so I would say, I mean, one direction I can see Ukraine very much following is the post-Winter War Finland or the post-independence uh, Israel, where, I mean, they've had their problems later on, but basically the uh, there was no way that Finns after the Winter War or Israelis after becoming independent and then being constantly attacked uh, by their neighbors, it just creates a spirit among people. So I'm actually... Uh, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic. I am completely convinced that Ukraine will become the great transformation story of the uh, post-Soviet era. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to that. I hope live, I live long enough to see it. You know. And that's it for part one of our interview with Thomas Hendrik Ilves the former president of Estonia. For part two, turn the cassette to side B. Just kidding. We'll post it tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.